Hi, I'm Nancy Cavey, National ERISA and Individual Disability Attorney. Welcome to Winning Isn't Easy. Before we get started, I've got to give you a legal disclaimer. This podcast is not legal advice. The Florida Bar tells me that I have to say this, but I will tell you, nothing will ever prevent me from giving you an easy-to-understand overview of the disability insurance world, the games that disability carriers play, and what you need to know to get the disability benefits you deserve. So off we go. Today, I'm going to be talking about nurse-centric short- and long-term disability claims. Nurses are the backbone of the medical community, and they've been integral in combating the COVID-19 pandemic. Disability claims are highly scrutinized, and the same goes for disability claims of nurses. So let's take a look. First, I'm going to talk about a registered nurse with Cushing disease who was awarded line of short-term disability benefits. Next, I'm going to talk about a nurse anesthetist who was self-treating their insomnia and unfortunately passed away. We'll talk about why that claim got denied for accidental death and dismemberment uh, benefits. And lastly, I'm going to talk about how the general workplace standard of occupation and a medical trainer a nurse disability policy doomed ultimately her disability insurance claim. Now, just because I'm talking about nurses doesn't mean that there isn't anything that you can learn. So listen up. Let's take a break first, though. Have you been robbed of your peace of mind from your disability insurance carrier? You owe it to yourself to get a copy of Robbed of Your Peace of Mind, which provides you with everything you need to know about the long-term disability claim process. Request your free copy of the book at kvlaw.com today. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. Ready to get started? Let's talk about a registered nurse who had Cushing's disease and how ultimately she was awarded her line of short-term disability benefits. Cushing's disease is a disorder that has the potential to cause debilitating symptoms. Those symptoms can include muscle pain, joint pain, headaches, vertigo, insomnia, brain fog, fatigue, and memory loss. And any of those can interfere with a nurse's ability to perform their occupational duties. In fact, it can result in the death of a patient. Let me give you an example of something that happened uh, in a case involving a nurse by the name of Nurse Flores. She was responsible for providing collaborative and comprehensive care at St. Joseph's based on the patient's needs and the family needs. She provided patient assessments, treatment and care, and medication administration. That means that she had a physically and cognitively demanding occupation. Now, she stopped working in January of 2017 because she was experiencing symptoms of undiagnosed Cushing disease. She was out of work for at least six months and ultimately returned to employment at St. Joseph's in August of 2017, despite having these Cushing symptoms. She went back out of work a second time on January 28, 2018, and that was less than six months from her August 7, 2017 return to work date. Now, Six months later, Flores got a call from Cigna, the disability carrier, asking if she was going to file a long-term disability claim. She said, hey, I want to go back to work. I'm a nurse. I want to take care of my patients. And Cigna closed her LTD file on July 21st, 2007. But unfortunately, the symptoms of Cushing's disease caused Nurse Flores to um, stop working again on January 28, 2018. And subsequently, on July 30, 2018, she filed a claim for short-term disability benefits. So what did Linus, 
do with Nurse Flores's short-term disability claim in view of the nature of her symptoms and the fact that she had had some uh, attempts to go back to work. Well, as usual, Lina had her the medical records reviewed by its liar-for-hire nurse consultants, and those nurse consultants cherry-picked and selectively reviewed her medical records. Of course, they determined that there was no functional impairment, and they denied the claim. But Flores's treating PCP said, look, the symptoms that she has and had were consistent with Cushing's. And that's based on objective testing, which, which was ultimately corroborated by a neurosurgeon who had performed a craniotomy. A second line of nurse rejected all these medical records. And ultimately, Flores said that's enough. And she filed a lawsuit. In the case of Flores versus Cigna, a federal judge in California took Lina to task for rejecting the more qualified attending physician statements who were board certified specialists, had treated and examined her, and who were all of the opinion that she was disabled based on the examination findings and their discussions with Nurse Flores. And the judge said, oh no, we're not going to allow this wrongful denial to stand. And the judge awarded short-term disability benefits, but denied the claim for long-term disability benefits. Why? Well, Nurse, Nurse Flores actually hadn't even filed a claim for long-term disability benefits. And the uh, judge said, look, your attorney gave you some bad advice when he told uh, Lina that they were going to pursue the LTD benefits through litigation rather than file a claim. Now, that was a huge mistake because Nurse Flores lost her right to pursue her long-term disability benefits to age 65. Now, what should have been done is obviously file an appeal of the short-term disability denial, but Nurse Flores should have filed a claim for long-term disability benefits as a result of her Cushing's disease and exhausted her administrative remedies if the claim was denied. In other words, if Cigna had denied the long-term disability claim, she would have had to file an appeal. And if the appeal denial was upheld, only then could she file a lawsuit. She jumped the gun and jumping the gun cost her a lot of money. You can see that you can make crucial mistakes, not only in a short-term and long-term disability claim, but those mistakes can deprive you of needed uh, and well-deserved long-term disability benefits through the life of the claim. Obviously, you want to be consulting with an experienced ERISA disability attorney before you stop work if you get a short-term disability uh, denial and to learn more about what you need to do to file a long-term disability application to preserve your rights to those benefits. In our next segment, I'm going to talk about a nurse anesthetist who was self-treating their insomnia and unfortunately passed away. What happened when their family tried to uh, file a claim for accidental death and dismemberment benefits? Let's take a break. to winning isn't easy. I'm going to talk about a nurse anesthetist who was self-treating their insomnia. Do you know that accidental death and dismemberment policies will often exclude the payment of AD&D benefits for a death caused, resulting from, or contributed to by alcohol, prescription, non-prescription, and illegal drugs, medication, intoxication, and or, and or narcotics? Now, that's a pretty broad exclusion. And the key to the application of the exclusionary clause starts with the policy of the plan language. 
unfortunately, there is no uniform policy or plan language. And you've got to get out your particular policy or plan. And when a lawsuit ends up in court, the judge is going to begin their analysis with a policy or plan language. In the case of Baptiste versus Securian Financial Group, Judge Altman of the Southern District applied 11th Circuit case law to this AD&D claim. Now, every federal circuit has its own approach to the analysis of a claims denial, and the 11th Circuit is no exception. In the 11th Circuit, which is in Florida, we happen to use a five-step um, sequence in determining whether or not a claim denial is arbitrary and capricious. In the 11th Circuit, a claim administrator's denial of benefits is going to be upheld by the court if the denial is reasonable. Now, what's key is that the administrator's decision is reasonable if it's supported by some reliable evidence in the record, even if the claimant or the policyholder's position is reasonable. Now, in this case, uh, Baptiste, who sued on behalf of his brother's estate, um, advised uh, the in the claim that his brother was a nurse anesthetist and had been self-treating insomnia for years with IV medication. And unfortunately, Baptiste's brother passed away because of an overdose. The amount of benefits was $673,000. And the carrier denied this on the basis that the death wasn't an accident, as defined in the terms of the policy, that the death was excluded under the drug exclusion. And they also invoked the crime and felony exclusions. In my view, this is the trifecta of defense theories that are commonly seen in drug overdose cases. The brother had been found dead in his apartment with an IV inserted in his hand and vials of medication scattered throughout the apartment. The medical examiner concluded that there was no evidence of an injury and that the manner of death was an accident with the drug use as the cause of death. Unfortunately, the toxicology report revealed a number of substances, including ketamine, lidocaine, um, metoprolol, and fentanyl with a blood alcohol of 0.17, obviously intoxicated. The claim was denied, and ultimately, when a lawsuit was filed, Judge Altman had to decide if the drug exclusion applied. Now, Baptiste argued that the um, policy was misinterpreted. The Securian had misinterpreted or incorrectly applied the term narcotic and claimed that his brother, who was a nurse anesthetist, could legally self-treat. Funny, It was funny in that there was no pharmacy records of any medication that had been found by a toxicologist. So unfortunately, um, it appears as if the brother was basically stealing this and probably stealing it from the medical facility that he worked at. So as a result, Securian, the AD&D carrier, also invoked the crime and felony exclusions on the basis that the brother was in the possession of controlled substances and unprescribed medication in violation of the law. Now, so what did the judge do? The judge first started out by finding that the policy required that a bodily injury be evidenced by visible contusion or wound, and that it has to be the sole cause of the death or dismemberment. Unfortunately, there was no such evidence on the body. So the judge found that there was no accident. Um, and the judge then went on to the next question, and that was whether or not this was 
intentional or whether the brother had subjectively expected that his actions would result in death or serious injury. Now, if the court can't determine the deceased subjective expectations while using drugs, the court will use an objective analysis and ask whether or not someone with a similar background or experience would have expected an injury or death to result in these circumstances. What the court found was that the deceased brother, the nurse anesthetist, was not legally qualified to prescribe and administer the drugs on which he overdosed. The judge said, look, it's really fair to say that a reasonable person in his shoes, given his extensive training and experience, would have known that injury or death would have resulted from the act of ingesting not only enormous amounts of alcohol, but a cocktail of unprescribed medications. The judge ultimately ruled that the death was not a covered loss. And even though the judge could have stopped the analysis at that point and said, I'm denying the claim, the judge went on and found that the exclusions, the criminal exclusions that had been raised also applied. And using this trifecta of denials, the uh, reasons for the denial, the 11th Circuit upheld the denial. And now I will tell you the result potentially could have been different in a different circuit with different plan language, but you can see that the plan language and the facts of the case matter in whether or not a case is compensable and whether or not a judge is going to uphold or overturn a claims denial. Got it? Okay, let's take a break. Are you a professional with questions about your individual disability policy? You need the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. This book gives you a comprehensive understanding of your disability policy with tips and to-dos regarding your disability application that will assist you in submitting a winning disability application. This is one you won't want to miss. For the next 24 hours, we are giving away free copies of the Disability Insurance Claim Survival Guide for Professionals. Order yours today at disabilityclaimsforprofessionals.com. Welcome back to Winning Isn't Easy. I'm going to talk about how the general workplace standard of occupation in a medical trainer nurse's disability policy ultimately doomed her disability insurance claim. One of the most important definitions in a disability insurance policy is the definition of occupation. Why is that? Well, to get your disability benefits, you have to prove that you're unable to do the material and substantial duties of your occupation. How your policy defines the term occupation and what your occupation was at the time you became disabled can make all the difference in whether or not you get your disability benefits. And I think the story of Nurse Ann Kay, found in the case of Kay versus Hartford Life, will really illustrate the importance of understanding the policy definition. Kay worked as an operating room nurse for over 13 years and developed low back pain. She ultimately had to change positions with Cineron, and she became a clinical specialist uh, on a per diem basis. Now, she underwent back surgery, subsequently recovered, and went back to work for Cineron. However, when she went back to work, uh, Cineron had merged with Candela Corporation, and they hired her as a full-time clinical specialist and a medical device trainer. Now, unfortunately, her low back pain returned. She had limited range of motion. Her treating physicians took her out of work. Diagnostic studies showed that she had lumbar degeneration above the old fusion. And on physical examination, she had mild radiculopathy as well as a chronic S1L5 radiculopathy. 
So she was having back pain and back pain with radiation of pain down her leg, which is clearly painful. Now, she also went on to develop cervical degenerative disc disease and spondylosis in her neck, but there was no nerve impingement. When she applied for her disability benefits, she was paid short and long-term disability benefits by Hartford. But Hartford subsequently terminated her benefits, noting that she had to prove based on the policy that she could not perform the essential duties of her occupation as generally recognized in the workplace, not as performed specifically for her employer. Clearly, Hartford was looking for a reason to deny the claim. They had a vocational evaluator look at her occupational history and the description of her occupational duties. They concluded that her occupation required her to provide support to sales. She would travel to customer locations. She would move devices, and that required her to sit and stand for hours. She would push and pull up to 20 pounds. She would lift and carry up to 20 pounds. So once they established what they thought her occupational duties were, they went on to have a paper paper review physician look at her medical records. And guess what? That liar for hire medical reviewer said, ah, she could perform those duties. And when her claim was denied, she appealed. And she said, look, you have incorrectly determined my occupation and the strength level at which it's performed. And you clearly don't understand that my diagnosis renders me unable to meet that applicable strength level. Well, on appeal, what did the Hartford vocational evaluator conclude? Hartford had another vocational analysis done, and the VE concluded that her occupation was a combination of a training representative and a general duty nurse. The occupation's essential duties involved administering treatment in accordance with nursing techniques and preparing medical equipment, and developing and conducting individual and group training programs for employees for industrial, commercial, or government clients of the equipment and the treatment. And lastly, the VE concluded that the physical demands were of a range from light to medium, with occasional lifting, carrying, pushing, and pulling of up to 50 pounds. What did they do? Well, Hartford did the same thing it did the first time. It sent the case to a second liar for hire paper review doctor. That doctor looked at her records and disagreed with her treating physician about her capabilities. And as a result, Hartford said, we think you can do uh, the uh, essential duties of this occupation as we've defined it. Obviously, this case ends up in federal court. The analysis starts with what was the policy definition of occupation that the court was required to apply. Now, the policy provided that a person was disabled if they were prevented from performing one or more of the essential duties of your occupation. The term your occupation was not subjective and it didn't consider her specific duties as she performed them for her employer. Rather, this policy had an objective definition of occupation as recognized in the general workplace. In other words, she had to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that her medical diagnosis prevented her from performing an essential duty of her occupation as recognized in the workplace. Now, unfortunately, Kay uh, and her attorney did not do a very good job in the appeal of explaining why her medical condition prevented her from performing her occupational duties. And she never challenged this faulty vocational conclusion on appeal after the second denial. K 
case should have attempted to rebut Hartford's vocational analysis that concluded their occupation was a combination of occupations and that her physical demands were in a range of light to medium. Secondly, she didn't provide any proof that she was unable to perform any one of those activities. She didn't even submit a functional capacity evaluation, which is a physical examination to determine a person's strength levels and their tolerance levels. That would have been key. Thirdly, she didn't have her physician address her restrictions and limitations and rebut the opinions of the liar for hire paper peer review doctors who said she could do these duties. And lastly, she didn't submit a vocational report uh, contesting and rebutting the conclusions of Harford's vocational evaluators. The court obviously rejected her, her uh, uh, argument that she, that, the, that Hartford was wrong and that they should just accept her doctor's conclusions. The court noted that the doctor never explained the restrictions and limitations with any kind of detail, which of course was another mistake, which could have been addressed by taking the statement of the physician. These were fatal mistakes that doomed her claim. She failed to provide Hartford and give the court the necessary proof of her restrictions and limitations. She didn't challenge the vocational classification of her occupation and she certainly didn't provide the court with the information as to how her diagnosis and her symptoms impaired her ability to perform her occupational duties. And as a result, this left the court with no choice but to accept Hartford's paper review doctor's opinion about her restrictions and limitations and their opinion as to why her diagnosis and symptoms didn't prevent her from performing at a medium duty level. As a result, the court upheld the claims denial. And this is a sad example of what can happen when you don't have an experienced ERISA disability attorney representing you in the appeal. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Winning Isn't Easy. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider liking our page, leaving a review, and sharing it with your friends and family. Also, I would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode comes out. By the way, I also want to tell you that we have our 2022 KV Law Scholarship. It's up and running, and we're taking entries until August. You can head over to kvlaw.com backslash scholarships to enter or to tell friends or family about this great scholarship opportunity. I hope you tune in next week for another insightful episode of Winning Isn't Easy.